We continue in our study of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And the title of the series, as we had already mentioned, is What Makes Christ So Special? We began several months ago, because of the gaps in my being here, by considering that Christ is the Son of God. Then, second, we focused on the phrase in verse 2, whom he, that is God, hath appointed heir of all things, which tells us that long before the world was ever laid, the foundations of the world were laid, the Father covenanted with the Son that he would be the possessor and the disposer of all things. Then we moved on to consider the words, by whom also he made the worlds. Creation itself is attributed to the Son of God. And we spent several weeks focusing on the Creator that is mentioned, as He is mentioned here in the first chapter of our text in Hebrews chapter 1, as well as creation itself. It wasn't just that we focused on Christ as the Creator, but we considered what was created and the future that the creation has while it is still under the bondage of sin, both the physical world as well as our bodies, yet we were able to focus on the glorious prospect and promise that has been given to us in the Word of of God, that that bondage to sin will not always remain, that the world itself and we in our physical bodies have a glorious redemption that's awaiting us. And so, We have been considering these great truths concerning what makes Christ so special. Now, last week we began verse 3 where we focused on the phrase, who being the brightness of his glory. The two aspects of the glory of God are clearly seen in his son, Jesus Christ. That being the brightness of his essence that you find throughout the word of God whenever God appears the the radiant brightness, the physical brightness that is associated with God himself. That is true of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we spent time considering that. But then also the other usage of the word glory, which has to do with the glory of God's attributes. The glory of the attributes of God is also seen in the work of Christ. Now today I want to consider, as I said, these, these next two phrases into one message as we consider the express image of God's person and that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Considering those two phrases, I've entitled this message this morning, Christ, the image and the power of God. Christ, the image and the power of God. And so, I trust the Lord will meet with us and help us as we consider his word this morning. The first thing I want to focus on is the image of God is seen in Jesus Christ. The image of God is seen in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and the express image of his person. Christ is the express image of his person. Quite literally, if we were to take a more literal translation of this from the Greek we would read the exact impression of his substance. Christ is the exact impression of the substance 
of God the Father. The best way that we can illustrate that, or the best way that we can relate to something doing that very thing, is the image of a typewriter. And I realized, as I wrote that, that there's an entire generation that probably has never even heard of a typewriter. And in this context, the typewriter would stand alone. You can't, you can't get the same meaning that we're trying to arrive at by the use of a keyboard that hits a digit and a digit pops up on the screen. And I just realized this because we, we, I actually picked up an old typewriter months ago. Uh, someone, someone left it at a house. We, I just got done explaining to some folks yesterday how uh, certain items come into my possession through the line of work that I do because I'm in property management. And one of the advantages or often disadvantages of my business is that I get to go in after people that get evicted, leave things behind. There are times where I walk in and I say, I am glad that I'm first on the scene. And believe me when I tell you, there are many times where I walk in and say, I wish I was the last on the scene, the way that the, the places are left. But often there are things that are left behind and someone left a typewriter behind. And so I brought it home and my boys had never seen a typewriter. They were amazed that you push down on a letter and this arm comes up. And, and the harder you push on the letter, the further the arm goes up. That if you push that, that, that letter down, the arm goes all the way up and leaves a strike upon the paper. And I know for the younger generation, it's hard to believe that that's the way we used to officially communicate through letters. When a letter was presented in a legal fashion, it had to be typed out. And the word that we find here that is the express image of his person is the Greek word from which we get the English word character. Right? Now, the word character means a number of different things in English. We talk about a shady character. right? We're talking about an individual. But there, there's also a use of the word character that means an instrument used for engraving or carving, as in the stamp of a coin, the print pressed on paper, and the mark made by a seal, the old signet rings. They would have hot wax. You would have a, a ring that was embossed with a certain design on it. And when that ring would come down in the hot wax and would pull away, the exact representation of what was on the signet was left upon the seal. So that when that letter was sealed, and more importantly, when that letter was opened, the person receiving the letter would realize that it was sealed by that individual. And that letter was not opened. It was only intended to be opened for that, that person. And so the idea of the express image is the idea of the typewriter. If you wanted a, an E to be printed on the paper, you hit the E on the typewriter, and that character would come up and leave an exact representation of that, that letter as it was found on the typewriter. And that's the idea, that's the understanding that Christ 
is the exact representation of the substance of the Father. All that God is, everything which comprises His nature and His character is seen in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not something that we are able to comprehend. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. The word for mystery in that verse, it's the Greek word for mystery, but it, it doesn't necessarily carry with it the idea of the way we use mystery. We talk about a murder mystery or we talk about something that is mysterious. And as long as we continue to chip away at it, we'll arrive at the answer, right? Some of these murder mystery books, one clue after the next clue after the next clue, and finally someone is able to make an accusation as to what happened. That's not the idea in the Greek. The idea in the Greek is that the word mystery is something that can only be understood by divine revelation. Every time you find the word mystery found in the Greek, in the New Testament, keep that in mind. It's not that it's mysterious, but it's that it can only be understood by divine revelation. How is it possible that you and I can understand that eternal God can be revealed with an exact representation, an exact character strike? In the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says it's not possible. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. If the Lord did not reveal it in his word, we would not be able to understand or come up with this doctrine. We wouldn't be able to arrive at the understanding that Christ, who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, as, as he came into the world, he was the exact representation of God. Again, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How is it that all of the fullness of the Godhead can be contained in a body? It, it, you're dealing with the eternal God. And yet here Paul tells us, in Christ is all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Almost as if Paul doubted that we would understand what he was saying by simply saying Godhead. Would it not have been enough if Paul simply said, in him dwelleth the, the Godhead bodily? But to drive home the point that Christ is the exact representation of the eternal God, he tells us, in him dwelleth all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You, you can't take it in. You can't understand how that, some, that something dwelling outside of time, that when he described who he was, he said, before Abraham was, I am, in the constant present. How is it possible that the constant present from eternity past to eternity future can dwell in, in something in a bodily form? Oh, we marvel. We, we just have to marvel at the miracle which is Jesus Christ. 
Oh, when they saw him, they saw a man. They, they saw a man who hungered. They saw a man who wept. Imagine that. The eternal God weeping. So moved with emotion concerning the death of Lazarus. What sin had wrought that the eternal God was moved to tears. In Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ himself said in John chapter 14, Jesus says to to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Lord, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough. What did Christ say? Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Can you imagine the reaction the, the confusion of mind as Thomas was trying and, and Philip and these others were trying to process what the Lord just told them. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one else, no one else that ever walked the face of the earth could have had that said about them. Oh, you may have seen some of the attributes on display as the Lord used vessels unto his honor, as the Lord used Moses to part the sea, as the Lord used Elijah to raise the dead. But none of them, none of these men that performed great works that the Lord used and raised up to perform these works, none of them could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why is that? Because only in the Lord Jesus Christ could the, could the Godhead dwell bodily, or to use the words of our text, he alone is the express image of his person. A.W. Pink said in his commentary, the very impress or the very impression of his substance, is it not enough to read scripture, nor even to compare passage with passage? Nor have we done all when we have prayed for light thereon? There must also be meditation, prolonged meditation. Of whom were these words spoken? Of the Son but as incarnate, that is, the Son of Man, of Him who entered this world by mysterious and miraculous conception in the virgin's womb. Men doubt this, men deny this, and no wonder, when they have nothing but a corrupt reason to guide them. How can a sin-darkened understanding lay hold of, believe, and love the truth that the great God should hide Himself in a frail human nature? That omnipotence should be concealed in a servant's form. That the eternal one should become an infant of days. This is the great mystery of godliness. But to the family of God is without controversy. I thought I loved the way he put that. The great mystery of godliness. But to us it is without controversy. This once again strikes at the very fabric of much of the error that is concerning the person of Christ in our day. We considered under some of the other phrases that we found in this passage, 
the errors of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the error that they teach that Christ is not Jehovah God. How is it? How is it possible that anyone but Jehovah God can know the fullness of the Godhead dwelling within them? Christ is not of similar substance with the Father. He is light of light, very God of very God. He is not a created being. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. The Jews, which hated Christ, even they, when they sought opportunity to put him to death, they even understood what Christ was saying. When he said in John 8, 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. There's no misunderstanding of what the Savior was trying to say in that verse. Because the Jews then picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They knew exactly what Christ was saying. Who else but eternal God can say before Abraham was, I am the name of God. Christ took it to himself. Oh, I say there's, there's no one, no one like Christ who is and always has been the express image of the person and the character of God. So we see the image of God as it's seen in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to consider this morning is the sustaining power of God is seen in Jesus Christ. Not just at the express image of his person, but then the verse goes on to say, in upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by the word of his power. The Greek word for upholding means to bring or to bear up or to support. To support something. That's, the, that's the, how the word is used in the Greek for upholding all things. It's one of the two words that make up the name Christopher. Right? Almost everyone that addresses me thinks that my name is Christopher. Okay, it's Christian. My name is Christian. <laughs> but I don't mind being called Christopher. And I'll tell you why. Because the name literally means one who lifts up Christ and is a bearer of Christ. I had an aunt. This tells you how, how very few Christians in name there are in the world. I had an aunt that until her dying day, whenever we got together, called me Christopher. I, it didn't matter. I gave up. I gave up. And just telling her, you know, Aunt Pat, that's, that's not my name, actually. <laughs> my name's Christian. But every time I would see her, and then she'd call me Christopher, I'd look over at my mom, and my mom would be laughing. But it's okay. She, she didn't call me a Christ denier even though Christian means follower of Christ. She didn't call me a rejecter of Christ. She didn't call me a denier of Christ. In name, she called me one who bore Christ or lifted Christ up. So if you make the mistake and call me Christopher, I'll consider it a compliment because there's very few names that are worth being called than the name Christopher. But I, I say that to say that that name is made up of two Greek words. This is why Greek, I, I say this to young people all the time, right? I studied Hebrew, a little bit of Hebrew, and I could not wait until the last day of Hebrew class. I could not wait. It literally is a backward language 
You read it backwards, right? And there are, there, there are certain classes of language around the world, certain groups of languages. I think there's three, and I'm, I'm not going to try to say them, but I know one's like the, the European languages that, that came from Greek and Latin, and then I think you've got the Asian uh, languages and then some other, there, there's a third group. But there's, there's three groups of languages, and as long as you pick up and try to learn languages within those groups, you're usually okay. But when you try to jump from one group to the next, your, your, your brain is trying to think in a totally different way. And literally, Hebrew is backwards. You read from right to left. And so right from the word go, I was out in left field with Hebrew. I just never felt like I could get a hold of it. But Greek, Greek was a different story. Greek, there's a, there's a reason why Paul says that the Greeks prided themselves in wisdom, right? The little exposure to languages that I've had, Greek, if ever there was a language that had to be the language that everyone should speak, it probably should be Greek. The, the, the number of exceptions that are used in the Greek language are extremely minimal. English is a language of exceptions. Everything about English is an exception, from what I'm told, I thankfully have had the privilege of learning it from my youth. But when you try to learn another language and you see how things are orderly and then you look at English, it's completely out in left field. It, is, it must be an, an impossible language to learn. Very difficult language to learn. But Greek is not that way. Greek is a very, uh, it's a language of few exceptions. And so learning Greek you see a lot of words that come from Greek into English. This is why I tell young people, if there's a language that you want to learn, I put Greek over Latin, right? Latin is a dead language. It, 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 it as well has a heavy influence on English. I think 80% of the English language comes from Greek and Latin, from what I heard. But you will find, and this is why I, I love Greek so much, you'll find just in words that we use every day, you'll find Greek words, right? I'm from Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love. Where did that come from, right? So you see this all the time in Greek. And that's why it's so exciting is that even names of places and people that we use, oftentimes it is literally two Greek words put together, or three Greek words put together. So I encourage you young people, if there's a language, and I obviously would put Greek over Latin because the scripture was written in Greek. The scripture, regardless of what the Church of Rome tells us, was not written in Latin. And there's some things that, that Jerome's Vulgate was used, and, and, and it was a, a, a tool used of the Lord. But Paul did not write in Latin. Paul wrote in Greek. And so when you come to passages like this, and you see the word Pharaoh being used, and you realize it's part of Christopher, it's, it's much easier for especially young people to understand the use of the word. So this word, to bear along, to bring, it's translated bringing in Mark chapter 2, verse 3, and they come to him bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. It took four people to bear him along. Simply from the balancing, right? They probably had him on a, a stretcher or something, and they actually ripped 
the roof apart and laid him, let him down through the, through the roof. Right? But he was being carried by four people. That's what the word means. It's, it's, it's translated bringing. Bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And then another use of the word. As they led him away, they laid, they, they laid hold upon one, Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Literally, Simon was bearing the cross of Christ. He was helping Christ with the cross. Boy, if that isn't a, a passage that begs to be preached. Simon was bearing the very cross upon which Christ would die. So that's how the word is used, to be borne along, to be carried along. The all things mentioned in this passage, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is bearing all things. He's upholding all things. I've often used the expression or the illustration of Atlas from Greek mythology. You see it all the time. People use it, businesses use it in their logos, right? You see it on organizations of the, of the one that's holding the world on his shoulders, right? Bearing up the world. The, the Greek mythology taught that the one who kept the world in place, that upheld the world, was Atlas, right? That's where we get the idea of an atlas, although none of us really use atlases anymore because we have an atlas at our fingertips. It's kind of, atlases get thrown over in the corner with the typewriter sitting, right? There's a whole slew of things that just aren't used anymore, right? So throw the atlas over with the typewriter, right? That word atlas comes from the idea of Greek mythology, the one who was upholding the world on his shoulders is atlas. And you often see, I, I didn't do this, but it would be interesting, go back home or when the service is over, type in atlas and hit images. And, and notice probably the strain that atlas is under, right? Holding the world up in place. He's straining because of the weight of the world. The whole idea is, oh, what a terrible, a terrible thing to have to hold the world up and poor atlas with the world on his shoulders. Here we're told that the Son of God upholds all things, but not by his shoulders. Not by his shoulders. His shoulders could handle it. He's the, he's the eternal God. But what, what a description unfolds before us in this verse. Because the all things that are being upheld are being upheld by the word of his power. The very word, the simple word, almost as if Christ did not, does not need to even exert his, his shoulders. Christ does not need to throw his back into the work of, of upholding all things. Simply the very, the, the word, the word spoken upholds all things. Colossians tells us a little bit of what the all things means in Colossians chapter 1. For by him were all things created, everything we see, everything we know in creation, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. There are, there are parts of creation we can't see. 
God created things that, that are naked to the, to the, or that are invisible to the naked eye. Things on the micro scale. We know that they exist because when I fly a plane, almost every time I get off the plane, about two days later, I got a cold. How did that happen? Well, someone's sneezing out a virus or something on the plane. I can't see it. I breathe it in. Two days later, I'm sick. Right? He created all things, visible and invisible. On the macro scale, there are things that we can't see above. There are things that we'll never see above. He created all those things as well. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And then later in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The all things, things that are visible, things that are invisible. Christ, we're told in our verse, upholds all of these things by the word, the very word of his power. By him all things consist. What's the word power mean? The Greek word from which we get our English word dynamite. The word of his power. Right? It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 1. When Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God. It's the Greek word dunamis. There's no Y in Greek. Right? So you have the, the U sound. But that's... It's a, almost a transliteration directly over into English. When, when the shovel and the pick can't get the job done, right? And you can sweat and labor and swing that pick and press that shovel and it's just not getting the job done. What has to happen? You got to call in the dynamite. It's time to blast. It's time to blast. Because everything I'm doing can't get the job done, right? So you bring in the dynamite, and the dynamite gets the job done. It's blasting power. It's raw power. The word of Christ, according to this passage, is the raw power of God on display. Upholding all things by the word of his power. What does that say about the word? Dynamite, when it goes off, creates an unbelievable reaction. And yet here we're told that it's simply the word. That is the dynamite of God on display in the person of Christ. And that dynamite of God is on display by the fact that everything 
is upheld. Everything is in its perfect place. Everything is held in order. John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Jesus then, or Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. In a, in a very small microcosm, you see the power of the word of Christ on display. These were soldiers. These were men with weapons ready to apprehend Jesus of Nazareth. They were, they were prepared for battle, for a fight, for a struggle. If ever there were a group of men that you, you would think had sure footing underneath them, it was these men. And all it took from the Savior was to say, I am. The word he is in italics in the authorized version, if you're using the King James version. That means that it's supplied by the translators to give the sense of the passage. But Christ, Christ simply said, I am, which is the name of God. When, when Moses asked the Lord, who is it that's sending me? When I go to the children of Israel and they say, who sent you? What should I say? The Lord said, tell them I am hath sent you. And the great miracles and the, the great demonstration of the power of God that was on display in Egypt was done by the I am. If Moses was to give a name to the children of Israel, the I am sent me. The very words that came from the mouth of Christ in the moment of weakness when he was being apprehended to go to the cross for his people, he simply says the words, I am. And this band of men, this this band of brutes that are carrying out the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen to apprehend and condemn the Son of God, fall backward to the ground, didn't just take a step back, weren't just startled at his words. They fell back and they were on their, their backsides, laid low in the dust at the simple words that Christ said when he said, I am. Any indication, any realization of the passage we're considering today and upholding all things by the word of his power, the one that can simply say his name and cause the enemies of Christ to fall backwards to the ground, he's the same one that we're told in our passage can uphold all things by the word of his power. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 and the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. 
And when they sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And, they, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And, when he, and, and he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. <laughs> Even in spite of the fact that they were saved, you would, you would almost expect... You, you would almost expect the words, they were relieved, right? They thought they were going to die. Now they know they're not going to die. So you would think you would find something like, and the heart of the, of the disciples was glad. But what's the reaction? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Peace be still. How is it that Christ was able to do that? He was able to do that because he upholds all things by the word of his power. John chapter 11, verse 41. Then took they away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. I'll add the word still. Bound. Hand and foot with grave clothes. He, he was still bound. He was still wrapped up. Hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. How is it possible that the Lord Jesus Christ can simply say the words, Lazarus, come forth. And he that is dead, who now has been given life, who still can't walk because he's bound, how is it that he comes forth out of the grave? Explain that to me. How is it possible? Well, I can explain it to you. Because the scripture tells me that he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the Son of God. This is the one that they referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is not the only one who created all things. Or Christ is the only one who created all things. And he's the one who bears up all things. The complex organic fabric of the creation which he formed by the word of his power. The very cosmos is upheld by the self-same word. That's what the passage is telling us. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. While it may be well outside the realm of our ability to comprehend that God could simply create all things of nothing, it should not be hard for us to grasp this fact, that the one who spoke all things into being should therefore be able to ensure that all of those things continue to work in an orderly and a harmonious fashion. What holds the cosmos together? What causes the moons of Jupiter to continue to spin around the planet so that with, a, with a, a simple pair of binoculars or a cheap telescope, you can actually witness the moons going around Jupiter with your own eyes. You can see it yourself. What causes that to continue, to, to, to continue on without any interruption? 
It's the word of Christ. There's no chaos in the universe. The things continue to work in order to support complex life here on earth. All of these things that have to take place. There's a, a, a video that I recommend to people that they watch. I watched it years ago. It was given to me by someone in our church, recommended to me. It's actually on YouTube now, the whole entire documentary. You can watch it yourself. It's called The Privileged Planet. The Privileged Planet. It's a documentary that is meant to argue against the Copernican principle, which teaches that because the earth is not the center of the universe and not the center of our galaxy in the Milky Way, because it's not the center, that there's nothing special about mankind. We're, we're, not, we're not unique. We're just another part of the enveloping dark. And these scientists actually put out this documentary to show that the evidence is so clear. Yes, the universe may be vast, but the, the probability that all of the things that are necessary to support complex life all happen to occur at the same time in the exact measure that they need to happen in conjunction with, its, with themselves, all these other things working together to support complex life, the probability that that could have happened elsewhere far, is, is far much more, uh, it, it blows away the probability that something like this could have happened again by chance. I think they set like 22 or 23 things that you find in nature itself that have to be fine-tuned properly and all occurring at the same time to support life upon the planet that we live. It's called the privileged planet. I, I, I highly recommend that you watch that. Because as you watch that and you begin to realize that even among secular scientists, many of them have to accept the fact that the universe is designed. The, the way that the universe is upheld and works together, the same <coughs> laws of physics that are true upon earth are true anywhere in the known universe. That's their testimony. These are men that don't even believe the gospel. But they acknowledge that, that things function in such an orderly fashion that there must be some form of design, some pattern that's being used, which does not speak of chaos. It speaks of order. Right? Well, we know. We know what that is. It's the order of Christ upholding all things by the word of his power. That should not surprise us. If he spoke all things into being out of nothing, that's a harder one to come to grasp with. How can you create something from nothing, from absolutely nothing? Explain that to me. Because I can at least explain to you how that the one who created all things of nothing can maintain and uphold those things. If he created everything from nothing, he is, he is well able to uphold the world in which we live. So, so what confidence do we have today? That the world's not going to spiral out of control. That, the, that the, the laws of physics aren't all of a sudden going to come unraveled and we'll have chaos. Because the very one who created the world out of nothing and the very one who, has up, who upholds the world by the word of his power has a final purpose for the world in which we live. 
And we, we, we spent time dealing with that uh, in, the, in the last Sunday. We spent time dealing with that, that the, the redemption that God's people will enjoy by virtue of the work of Christ will also be true of the natural universe as well. Jay Richards, one of the ones who put together this video, says, we've often been told, especially in the 20th century, that the universe does not have us in mind. That is, that we exist in a very large universe and that the universe was not designed for beings like us. We are simply life that happened to come about on a tiny little planet surrounding a tiny little star in a run-of-the-mill galaxy in a very large universe that in itself is not intended. That's what the ungodly believe. What does the Christian believe? That the very one who created the world is the one who is well able to uphold the world by the word of his power. The other person, Guillermo Gonzalez, who was responsible for this documentary, says there is something about the universe that simply cannot be explained by the impersonal forces of nature and by atoms colliding with atoms. And so you have to reach for something beyond the universe to try to explain and account for it. What is that? It's the fact that Christ upholds the world by the word of his power. Copernicus himself said, the mechanism of the universe wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator, the system which the best and most orderly artist of all framed for our sakes. He's done all of these things and he upholds all of these things so that we as his people can glory in not only the creator, but the one who then after creating all things took human flesh and came into the world to make an atonement for our sin. That's the one that Copernicus was talking about. This great master designer who has, has ordered all of these things for our sakes. Praise the Lord. It wasn't just in the natural world, the natural realm, that he's ordered all these things. But from the foundation of the world, Christ was slain for the sins of his people. That's the gospel. That's the, the, the dynamite of God unto salvation, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. Why is the gospel the dynamite of God unto salvation? Because in the message of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Everyone who believes and trusts in the work of Christ have put to their account a righteousness. Uh, the, the right to stand holy and acceptable before the Creator. The one who created all these things has made a way whereby his banished be not expelled from him. All in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same one who upholds all things by the word of his power. I trust that the Lord will take these thoughts and write them upon our hearts today for Jesus' sake. We'll close our meeting by standing and singing hymn number 606. Hymn number 606, safe in the arms of Jesus. <laughs>